I am thrilled to be talking with Dr. Sheldon L. Akins today. He is the founder of the Leading Equity Center and host of the Leading Equity Podcast. With over 11 years in education, he has served as a teacher, principal, and director of special education. Dr. Akins has a passion for helping educators accomplish equitable practices in their schools. He's earned a bachelor's degree in social science education, a master's degree in educational leadership, and a PhD in K-12 education. Get excited for my conversation with Dr. Sheldon Akins. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Sheldon, welcome to the Time for Teachership podcast. Do you mind just introducing yourself beyond the list of accomplishments and professional kind of accreditations that you have for our audience? Appreciate it. Uh, I'm Dr. Sheldon L. Akins. You can call me Sheldon. It's fine. Just don't call me Mr. I don't know. I just, that's one of those pet peeves. I hate being called Mr. Um, besides that, I am the host of the Leading Equity podcast. I'm also the founder of the Leading Equity Center. And uh, yeah, that's what I do in my spare time, if you will, is kind of still a hobby right now, but I do plan to go full-time um, this summer. So I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I know we need to you know, think big to enact transformative change. I'm curious in line with Dr. Patina Love's idea of freedom dreaming, which she describes as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. What is the big dream that you hold for the field of education? Was it yesterday or the day before I was doing a training in school? This is called this week. And I said, I want to get to a place where I'm retired, where I don't like my job of doing equity training, my job of supporting teachers with the tools and resources necessary to ensure equity at their school is over. I say, I want y'all to put me out of work because right now businesses, it's really thriving these days because unfortunately we got a lot of folks that aren't on board they still they still don't get it. And I don't even know if don't get it is the right word for a lot of folks if it's more of they don't care. And I want to get, that's my dream. I want to get to the place in my lifetime where a few years from now, like leading equity centers obsolete. Like it's, it's not even relevant anymore because we're, we're good. Everyone is good. That is perfect world. Money was an issue, resources, blah, blah, blah. That would be what I would like to see. I love that dream too, because I think it corresponds with a lot of the work that I do in capacity building. So if we build capacity, you don't need all the consultants coming in. You're just able to do the work on a day-to-day basis that in a way that's sustainable. So it's not equity in this moment when this consultant comes in or this PD is done, but it's an ongoing process in the way that we make decisions in our, in our schools. It's an ongoing process. And I'm glad you brought that up, Lindsay, 
because sometimes I'll do trainings and I'm coming once a month for an hour, hour and a half and um, nothing happens in between, right? So we're going 30 days between one session to the next session and every session is supposed to build upon each other. And what happens is I'll, I'll talk to the administrators or the, the leaders in these, you know, the people that have brought me in, like, what have y'all done in the last 30 days? Because I'm not changing lives in an hour. I'm here as a first touch. I'm here to provide you with some language because maybe you're about this life and you're doing this work, but you don't know necessarily all of the different terminologies. You don't know, okay, I know what microaggression is, but I couldn't give you a, a definition of microaggression. I can give you like a bits and pieces. I have an idea kind of situation. So how do I explain this to the rest of my staff? And you're not doing anything beyond that. You're bringing me in and expecting this microwave equity. You're expecting me to change all, you know, your whole school's culture with, you know, 12, you know, let's, let's call it 12 hours for a whole school year. Okay, because I'm coming in once or twice a month. I'm not changing lives like that. There has to be work on the school administrator side. They are the chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. School leader has access to the resources they have access to the funds to bring me in. So you're taking some good strides, but again, we're all at different levels. You're gonna have some first year teachers, you're gonna have some veteran teachers that know absolutely nothing or believe that there is no issue at their school, in their class, oh, I'm culturally responsive. Oh, I'm equitable in my approach. I treat all my kids the same. That doesn't even go together. You told me that you're equitable in your classroom, but you treat all the kids the same. How is that even a thing? So obviously you got some room for growth and that's fine, but I'm not gonna change your life within an hour, 90 minutes, two hours, three hours. There's work that you have to do on your own. They need to see that come from leadership as well. Absolutely. And I think you're speaking to a real mindset shift that has to happen to be able to do this work. What are some of the things that you're like, if only we could switch our minds around this, we might get a lot further. One of the things that we have to consider, first of all, it starts with us. I do a lot of trainings where, especially when it comes to race, we do a lot of race equity work. And a lot of my participants are white and they have never experienced racism. So it's like almost a different language to them. And then you have some people that's like, you know what, because I've never experienced this, this doesn't impact my community directly, then why should I care? So if you're asking me, Lindsay, well, what type of mindset, if only people would focus on one thing, my thing is focus on yourself, okay? Because if you're not taking the time to make yourself aware of situations that are outside of your social bubble, because you're just thinking about, okay, this is my everyday life. I don't necessarily recognize the privileges that I have, but we all have these type of privileges. Some have more than others. So I would say if I had to choose one mindset, my mindset would be self-awareness. In order to do equity work, you have to be aware that there are equity issues. If you cannot tell me that you have an equity issue or there are no equity issues within your school, your classroom, your hallways, your families at home. And let's keep it real. There are equity issues everywhere. If your school shut down last year, if you're still operating on online, even if you weren't operating on online right now, if you went back to the class, there are still challenges. We have to recognize that. When we say we treat all kids the same or we're equal, that's equality, right? That's the difference. It's not meeting the individual needs of our students. 
But we have to recognize that we have to be open-minded to that whole conversation. If you're not open-minded to the conversation, what's the point, right? And that's the thing that happens is a lot of my teachers that I work with, they'll reach out and say, Sheldon, I don't know what else to do. I don't know how to convince my colleague that what she's doing, her discipline practices, is very subjective and it's leaning heavily against our students of color. I don't know what to say. They're good friends of mine. We're close. How do I call them out? And I respond, it's not a matter of calling someone out. It's not a matter of a gotcha. It's more, again, bringing some awareness and, hey, listen, I know you don't mean anything by this. However, have you noticed that the students that are getting sent out of your classroom, the principals and write-ups that you're doing, have you noticed anything particular about those uh, write-ups? Let's look at the numbers. Those are hard conversations to have. I'll admit, tough. But don't say that you're woke. Don't say that you're uh, an advocate. You're an ally, co-conspirator, disruptor, whatever term you utilize. Don't say that that's what you are if you're not willing to have this conversation because essentially you might be more considered a bystander. So I think self-awareness is where I start. I feel like I answered a long answer, but bottom line, self-awareness. I love that too, because I think I've been learning a lot more about, you know, Resma Menicum and Dr. Sheree Bridges-Patrick. They talk about embodied anti-racism and that all of the white supremacy, if we're really naming what it is, right, it's, it's white supremacy, white body supremacy is affecting everyone. White bodies, humanity are also impacted. There's a Toni Morrison quote, Dr. Celia Ruiz had shared that on your podcast, I think a few episodes back. If someone is on their knees to make you tall, like we have a problem. So this idea of being in relation, right? And white supremacy as, as this relational thing, as, as this relational oppression is going to hurt everyone. Like we all have this work uh, to do and we are all negatively impacted by refusing to do the work. So what Resma Menicom calls uh, the dirty pain, right? It's painful either way, but the dirty pain is avoiding it. Like that's going to be painful. You're going to live with the shame shower, whatever it is. The clean pain is going through. The clean pain is doing the work. The clean pain is interrupting that person, like you said, even though I have a relationship with them because I know I'm helping them and their humanity by pointing out how they can be better and do better. And so I think there's so much in what you shared. And just, I love that before this conversation too, we were talking about this idea of a journey, right? You're, you're not ever reaching this moment of, of wokeness, right? Of, I know it all. I am the perfect human being that is equitable in every situation. And so that's just a little bit of what I've been learning and what I'm thinking about as you shared your response. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And and yeah, there's there's there is no end, there's no degree in wokeness that I, at least that I believe. I mean, there's always there's always room for growth. I think kind of to touch on one of the things that you said just now regarding um, making sure that our, our white folks are, are on board and they're doing the work with us. I'll say this, um, I've been in situations where I've seen teachers kind of pass things off and make it seem as if it's that community's problem or they should be the concern. Um, I remember having a conversation with a teacher that was teaching their, their students about blackface. And there was like one student, black student in the class and a teacher pointed at the student and said, well, your people find this offensive. And I said, well, as a teacher, I would think you would find it offensive as well. Like this is not black people's problem. This is like, we're not putting paint on our face to look dark skin. Like this is things that white people are doing. So I would hope that you would be offended that some of your peers 
might be doing these things or have done these things in the past, as opposed to passing this off as if this is someone else's issue. This doesn't impact me. Your people find this offensive. And I think when we start to take more ownership in our, like, even if something doesn't impact our community, like it doesn't impact me personally, but I'm able to understand why someone feels slighted. I work on a reservation. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Shoshone Bannock tribes. They have continued to have been mistreated and oppressed. If I was to say, oh, the Dakota pipeline, that's not an issue that I should be concerned about. Your people find that uh, offensive or your land has been taken, right? I, I have to look at it from, this is all of, like this is something that I'm outraged about. I'm upset, I stand with you. But when we just don't take any ownership and we say, well, you know, these people find us offensive, that person finds it offensive, or, you know, some people, some people might think this is wrong. We're not taking any ownership and we're not standing with folks. And that's, I think, is one of those pieces that we miss a lot. Absolutely. As we think about the, the action, although with the caveat, I always like to caveat the, the idea that sometimes we rush to action without actually sitting with that all that stuff you just described, all of those deep understandings that are foundational to the work, to the labor. When we think about what we could do to move forward and either deepen those understandings or, or take action within school settings, what brave actions are required? What steps can educational leaders take to really achieve this dream of kind of putting us out of work. I like that, put us out of work. Yeah, it, you know, one of the things about being brave, you know, there there was, a, you know, courageous conversation, brave conversation, those type of things. And Dr. Terry Watson said this on my show. She said, if, are, are you willing to put your job on the line in the name of justice? There's certain levels when it comes to you're willing to work towards this. So maybe something very subtle is about as far as you'll go. Meaning, you know, you're in a staff meeting and they want to schedule a parent-teach conference in the middle of the day. And you say, you know what, this is going to impact a lot of our working parents. They're going to have to take time off work. Maybe you have to get a babysitter, blah, blah, blah. And you raise your hand and you speak up. That's a small win, right? That's one level. Right? Maybe there's something that comes up that's going to impact a school uh, handbook issue. And then everyone seems to be on board with this new policy, but you're the only one that's recognizing, you know what, this is going to impact certain communities. It's going to impact certain students. This is going to impact the girls. Right? This, this dress code policy is really catering to the male gaze, and this is going to impact negatively our girls but you're afraid to say anything because you're the only one that's against it. So that's a whole nother level to the advocacy work. Are you gonna take that stand? Maybe you notice a principal has mistreated a family member of the school, or you see that maybe an email that was sent out had some undertone, some prejudice, discrimination might be in there, or you see something. Are you willing to go to your boss and say, hey, this is wrong. What you did was wrong. So there's different levels. What are you willing to do? And then to me, when you really decide on your level of like, I'm going to be an advocate, I, I don't care. So, so me personally, I don't care. If I feel like something is, is happening, it needs to be said, because if I don't do it, who will? And so sometimes we are by ourselves. 
Sometimes we do feel like lone, lone wolves. We're on an island because it seems like no one else seems to recognize the work that we're doing or that we're trying to do needs to happen. This is just the latest buzzword. Oh, this will die down. This whole equity, this whole Black Lives Matter, this will go away soon. Or it's just one added thing that I need to put on my plate of lesson planning. I already have to deal with social emotional learning. I already have to deal with um, trauma-informed care. And now you want me to talk about equity or now you want me to talk about Black Lives Matter? That's more work for me. When we could do these things, it's not added work. It's work that needs to happen. But we're so used to teaching one way. We were taught one way. And often the way that we were taught or trained to teach, even in our teacher prep programs, centers around whiteness. And we don't want to deviate. It's easier for us to teach this way. But we have to decolonize our classrooms. And if we don't, then again, the whole question of at what level, where's your threshold? Are you willing to put your job on the line in the name of equity? Yes, exactly. Are you willing to put your job on the line? I think that's the big question. A lot of times I get asked in workshops, well, how do I balance? And, and it's always framed as a balance, right? Or how do I walk the line of like, how do I balance like racial justice and gender justice? And then also, you know, not getting parents mad at me or not seeing being seen as too political. And it's like, you know, you, you're either in it or you are not. If you were to understand exactly all the things you just said, you wouldn't be asking that question, right? You would be in a position where it's like, yes, my principal said I might be fired for saying this, but it is the right thing to say. So I am committed to saying it. And you know what? Finding another job. I think there are probably dozens of times where I have been in that position as a teacher where I've been like, you know what? I am confident in my ability to go find another job. So I'm going to go ahead and say this and it's going to be dicey maybe because I could get fired. But if I'm not saying it, like I'm lying to myself that I am committed to equity. My response in those types of situations, because I get those too, right? I don't know how to be nice with, is sexism nice? Like if, if someone's being sexist to you, did you feel like that was nice? Is racism nice? All the isms, ageisms, you know, every isms, are they nice approaches? So you're telling me you've been triggered. You watch someone else be triggered because of a ism committed towards you and you're supposed to respond nicely because you don't want to hurt their feelings. Think about that. Let's replay back what you just said to me because that's essentially what I heard. So maybe, maybe I misunderstood. So I just want to clarify what I heard. You're telling me someone can commit uh, something towards you know, negative impact me where it messes my day up. You know, maybe it's eight o'clock in the morning, very first thing, I walk in the door and boom, I get hit with something. I got to go through the rest of the day with that on the back of my mind. And I got to figure out how to be nice to them. I get where you're coming from, from a moralistic basis. However, I have gotten to the place where like, I don't think I need to try to tiptoe around someone who is, whether they're intentional or not, is subjective. I don't know. I don't know what their intentions were. But am I supposed to be nice and respond in a nice, nice way because someone was sexist or racist towards me? I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with that. The other part is I tell people, if you feel like you're working in an environment where it's not safe to speak up or where it's not safe to call things out, where it's not safe to identify and name what is happening, you need to find another place. 
that's not the place for you. When I have people that say they want to interview, hey, I got a big job interview for this, this school. I say, make sure you ask them, what is their stance on anti-racism? Ask them, how will they be supported when they want to be an advocate? Those are questions that you need to ask. Because not only are the potential school, they're looking to see if you're a good fit, but you also need to make sure that the school is a good fit for you. If you are there because you want to provide an equitable learning space where you recognize that I'm gonna enter into this space, it probably won't be a perfect setting. There probably is gonna be some room for growth. I want to be able to make change and be able to be supported by my administrator when I need to make these changes so that again, we can create a space for our students that is equitable and conducive to their learning. I think about that same idea too, in terms of like a teacher pipeline or diversifying the, the teacher pool. What are you able to do as a school institution when you're interviewing people, know that you're also going to be interviewed. Like if, if someone's coming in and saying, you know, what is your stance on anti-racism? Like the question that you post, you better have an answer and it better be a good one and you better be committed to it because otherwise why on earth would someone come into a space as a person who is black, brown, indigenous, Asian, like, and, and be willing to work in that school that is fundamentally not anti-racist. Exactly. I wouldn't want to work there. If I, if I said, what's your stance on anti-racism, even if I asked, what is your stance on Black Lives Matter? And if you give me some answer, well, we don't talk about that, or we try to be neutral or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, I appreciate your time. This is not the place for me. Why would I want to work here? I'm a black man. You're telling me we don't talk about Black Lives Matter. We don't talk about anti-racism. No, I'm good. There's not, there's other schools. I can't work at a school like this. And not just me. I think about the students that are going to be at the school. If you got Black students, if you got Brown students, right? You got BIPOC, other staff members. Man, like I have the choice. I could apply for another position. This is not the school for me. And to bring it back to your your earlier point about specific actions, I'm thinking about just to, to paraphrase kind of what I was hearing you say is just to be able to name and to ask the questions of what are we not considering here? Like that's a concrete action that even if it feels like taking a stance of like, whoa, this is super messed up. If that's not the language that you typically use in your day-to-day -day interactions, finding the language that is in alignment with like who you are as a person, but also is taking a stand, perhaps that is phrasing it as a question. Like, let's take a time out here. Let's ask this question. Who's not being served? I think part of it is just figuring out how to come into that space as your true self and also advance justice. And so for some people saying, oh, I wouldn't say that. Well, then what would you say? You know, find the language that you would say and make sure that you are ready with that language that you're prepared ahead of time. Cause we know situations are gonna come up again and again and again. Yeah, and, and, and you're exactly right. We, we know these situations are gonna hit us. My thing is we're all different, right? Your approach might be different um, than my approach. Or again, I just, I, I do this enough versus someone that's brand new and have absolutely no clue. So your approach might be different. But I think at the end of the day, just making that approach and, and being willing to speak up. Because, you know, often I've been in situations, I've been in staff meetings where we just, you know, again, if it's not impacting me directly, I just didn't think about it. You know, I didn't even consider this. And just bringing it up, hey, hey folks, 
did you think about our, our students where uh, English is not their first language? Did we make sure that we have this communication um, translated in their home language? Oh, you're right. We didn't even think about that. You're right. It didn't, didn't even cross my mind. That's okay. It didn't cross your mind, but the conversation that has been started. So what are we going to do about it? Right? Oh, okay. We just need to figure out how to make sure that all of our families are in included in this communication. That's something that we need to do. But again, if you don't say anything, um, that may not ever happen. That conversation doesn't show up. And then you got a group of family members that uh, are not getting the communication that they need in order to attend an event or make sure that they know what's happening at the school. So many times, I think when teachers come into workshops that I'm doing on kind of curriculum, trying to rethink the curriculum that we have often been given and are just kind of delivering without critique. Sometimes the feedback that I'm getting is, well, Lindsay, I don't have a ton of time to just redo from scratch, like a complete brand new curriculum. What's the point where I use it with a critical lens? Like I, I still do the, the curriculum as written or something and we can problematize it or talk about it or ask questions about it. And when is the moment where I'm like, I need to not use this resource. I need to completely find different resources. And so I've, I've kind of seen this play out a little bit on social media lately with Dr. Seuss. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are here. I, I can tell you where my stance is. But again, I try to come into conversations with an open mind and try to look at it from different perspectives. I've heard the conversation about, well, we can utilize these books or Dr. Seuss's work as examples of what not to do or as, as examples of you know, teaching our kids about social justice. Right? And I believe it's like 2% of the characters in, the, in his books are of people of color and the other 98% of the humans represented within his books are white. So we can utilize that type of content as a means to talk about representation, talk about diversity and talk about those things. I see where people are coming from with that conversation. I don't agree with it, but I see, I see where you're coming from. Cause I feel like there's an under, underlining theme behind this. Let's keep the classics. Let's keep these traditional books that have been in our, in our libraries for decades. I feel like that's a way to try to just say, you know what, why should we stop selling the books altogether? This is Dr. Seuss, right? We should be able to keep, but we can reframe our conversations. So I see your point, but I, I don't agree with it because I just kind of feel like it's kind of a way to try to keep keep the books being sold and the whole legacy thing. Oh, I, I was raised on the, these books. My grandmother was raised on these books. My thing is this, and I asked a group this morning that I spoke to, I said, how many of y'all heard of any of those six books that were taken off the shelf? How many of y'all heard of them? I had like one or two people said, I think I heard of one book. Most of them were like, I've never heard of any of those Dr. Dr. Seuss books. I said, okay. With that being said, if I'm Dr. Seuss Enterprise or whatever his, you know, the company is. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback, you know, we're losing traction because, you know, it's national, well, it used to be Dr. Seuss Day, now it's become National Reading Day or something like that. And there's a lot of pushback for schools, which predominantly our schools and libraries are where most of our books are being sold, are, are pushing back. So let's just take these six off. And my thought was, okay, you see evidence that there is racial 
insensitivity, racism, stereotypes, all these things are perpetuated in six of the books. So there's overt in these books, but the rest of the books are fine because it's not in there. My thought was, why don't we take all of the books off the shelf? If Dr. Seuss had a sexual misconduct allegation, just allegations, all his books would have been gone. Merchandise, shirts, uh, comic books, movies, let them have some allegations. All of those things would have been gone. But it's because it's racism. And you see, let's say six women came out. Six women came out and said that Miss, uh, that Dr. Seuss wasn't even a doctor, mistreated me or, or did some inappropriate comments, just comments. All his books would have been gone. But six books that overtly show pictures, I can look and see, oh, this is pretty racist. We just take those six off. The other ones don't have it in there. We got to preserve Cat in the Hat. Classic. Can't do nothing with that one. Got to keep that one shut. Someone in the training that I was in this morning, they said that one of those books went from 12 bucks to 42 bucks. Everybody's buying up those books because they're about to get discontinued. They're still in stock. Think about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, how much will those books be worth? Because I got the discontinued version. So you still gonna make money off of those racist books. To me, that says a lot. It says a lot. Where I can sit there and say, you know, we recognize that just these six books have some stereotypes and it's and it's selling out for triple the what it's what it costs. This is the United States of America in 2021. So going back to circling back to our dream thought about me being retired and and you you know we don't have any more work left no one else no one else is reaching out but we're watching we're literally watching these things continue to happen so you got people that are buying these books for three times four times what they're worth and guess who's going to see those next generation kids little ones i bought this book for my grandbaby because i loved it i grew up on this book so so what, you know, you know, times were different back then. Things have changed. You know, people have told me, because I sent an email about this this morning and someone said, well, you know, he's clearly changed or he clearly changed later on. I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't know that he clearly changed. Just because I stopped drawing pictures doesn't mean I don't have the mindset anymore that I've seen an epiphany or I had some sort of come to Jesus moment. I don't know. I can't read someone's mind. I can read your pictures. So you stop. Maybe someone said, hey, you probably want to stop drawing those pictures of Japanese with squinty eyes like that. You may want to stop drawing pictures of Africans in grass skirts. May not be a good look for your brand. So he stops drawing those pictures. It doesn't mean his mindset has changed. Recognizes from a marketing standpoint, this impacts his brand. I can only speculate, but I would just confused only six books got taken off that's just my thoughts I appreciate that you bring that to that that direct contrast to speaking to like the me too movement if there were sexual assault allegations which are I mean as a as a feminist that's kind of where I come to this work through intersectional feminism there's so much of feminism that is white women looking out for white women and it is so clearly not intersectional in nature 
we say this is really important, but this, uh, maybe not. Or, you know, divorcing the idea of gender and race as if people don't both have gender and race. And so I think that's a really important thing that you highlighted. If you don't get it from everything else that you've been saying today, you know, hopefully people listening will be able to tune into that specific example and see how messed up that is that we have these different standards. So I really appreciate you driving that point home. To kind of wrap all of this up, because we've been talking about a lot of really important, what I would consider mindset shifts, like really changing our fundamental understandings of um, leading for equity and leading for justice. So I'm wondering as one final takeaway for listeners, if they're listening to all this stuff and just wondering what's one thing that they can do to really live in alignment um, of their values for justice and be the best version of themselves in, in bringing themselves and their full humanity to the class, you know, what, what does that actually look like? What's one action they could take? I would say start small. We're all at different places. I think just sometimes when we become aware of equity, and we, oh, oh, this makes sense. Oh, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. We tend to try to do all these things at one time. Take one or two things and, and, and start creating some small wins okay, let me look at my classroom or my instructional practice. What are some things that I'm doing right now that I could change tomorrow? And I believe that that could have an impact on my students long-term, right? Start building small, but when we try to do 10 things, I see schools that do equity audits and they wanna address all their, you know, all their things within their audit that comes up. Man, those audits, I mean, I have an equity audit. I mean, it's a 37 pager. So if I was to try to address everything in one year, starting with my mission and vision statement, it's gonna be overwhelming. And often those who are doing this work that are part of these equity committees is maybe four people, right? And then that's in addition to my other duties, you know, it's a, it's a volunteer job or maybe a stipend. So I'll just say, take, take one or two things and this is what we're gonna dedicate for the year. And then uh, you can even take three things. You maybe take a small short-term, was it smart goals kind of strategy where you take a short-term, a medium-term and a long-term goal and try to create those opportunities. But taking year by year, um, you are not going to change a culture that has been rooted, systemically rooted with racist and white supremacist ideologies. It's not gonna change in one year, okay? That's an ongoing task that's gonna take time Created, you had to be committed to uh, doing this work, but again, started with small wins first. I love that suggestion. Thank you. And as you said earlier, right, you're you're on this learning journey. We're all on this learning journey. You're constantly uh, dedicated to to learning and growing as an educator and a leader. So I'm curious to know what's something you've been learning about lately. Something that you've either been working on or been reading about, listening about. Um, something that you want to share with people. My favorite author of all times is Dr. Michael Eric Dyson and his latest book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. Oh my gosh, blew my mind. I love his work. Anytime he, he comes out with a book, I'm out, I'm out there getting it. He has a whole chapter or a section in one of his in his in that book that talks about George Floyd. Dyson had got the whole transcript of George Floyd's last moments, like the whole eight minutes, 46 seconds. And he just like illustrates it in a way that you're just like stunned because I've never watched the video. I've seen like a portion of it, but I've never watched the video. So I didn't know that this part was coming with the book, but I struggled through it because there's so many different emotions that come up when I think about police brutality, right? 
And it's one thing to see just a piece of it or watch the video, but when you're reading it, you're reading the transcript and you're seeing or hearing the things that he said in his last moments, it really struck a nerve. And it just, again, that is just one part of that book, but there's, there's a whole, it's like kind of like he writes letters to Emmett Till, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, uh, uh, Michael Brown, a lot of, a lot of folks are, are mentioned in that book. Uh, so I, that is the one I just finished maybe, I don't know, three, four weeks ago and uh, still, still on my mind. Thank you for sharing that recommendation. I need to read that book now. Yeah. And then finally, where can listeners learn more about you? Uh, connect with you on social media, listen to your podcast, check out your website, all that good stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, my uh, website is leadingequitycenter.com. There's resources there. There's the podcast is also there as well, which is Leading Equity. You can also follow me on social. Instagram is at Sheldon Akins and Akins with, with an E. So at Sheldon Akins, or you can follow me on Twitter at Sheldon Akins as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sheldon, for being on this podcast today. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Lyons or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.